I think you've heard of the Ten Commandments. We have ten affirmations of our phalanx. It's going to be a special message for our local assembly, but also for any who choose to listen and hear. I understand that people are listening in various places in the world, which is good, so our parish is the world, P-A-R-I-S-H. This is also increment chapter 251, or increment 251 of our Hebrew study, this study in this heavenly homily called Hebrews, a heaven-sent homily for our time, and addressed to us at this time. In Hebrews 3.1, we are called participants or partakers in a heavenly calling. It's a summons heavenward. It's issued by God in Christ. In Philippians 3.14, in fact, this summons is called the above call of God in Christ. The above call of God in Christ. And in the Greek, it's teis ano klesios tu theu en Christo Jesu, with the key word being ano, A-N-O, above, an above call, a call above. In the compass of our soul, and our soul does contain a compass of sorts, is the awareness of our, our objective and destiny. God has put within us a sense of our destiny, a sense of an objective that he has for us in life. And in this compass of our soul is where we find a thing called vertical finality. And I'm giving my own definition to that. I found it first in the great theologian and philosopher Bernard Lonergan. Vertical finality. VF for note takers, small v, small f. And that's our alignment to what I call a true north of the compass of the soul, an alignment to true north. And I get that from Psalm 48.1, which is the Septuagint 47.1, in which the sons of Korah, they were a priestly group of gatekeepers in the house of God and of the tent of God, sons of Levi, sons of Korah. And they spoke of the city of the great king on Mount Zion, which is beautiful in its elevated situation. And so they were speaking ultimately of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the true north toward which the compass of our soul points. In fact, they went on to say that it's situated in the sides of the far north, the far north, which I'm calling the true north, to which the compass of our soul points. And that's where the great king is enthroned. It's the city of the great king. Jesus called it that. In fact, in Mark, make that Matthew 5.35, referring to Psalm 48, 1 and 2. Vertical finality is by definition, my definition, it's an alignment of the soul, the spirit, 
the mind and the heart in an above direction. It's the alignment of the soul, the mind, the spirit, the heart, the intention. We're also going to call it the appetition, the appetite, the disposition, everything in us directed toward true north. Above, ano. That's where Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of God. Moreover, above, ano, A-N, omega, O, Yerushalayim, ano Yerushalayim, above Jerusalem, or the above Jerusalem in Galatians 4.26, is virtually the name of the heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem's name is ano, above. And Paul compares it to Sarah by an allegory and calls her our mother and that she is free and her children are free. Galatians 4.26, we'll be going into that before too long. So Ano is virtually the name of the heavenly Jerusalem. Yerushalayim, Epuranio, as the Greek has it, in Hebrews 12.22, where Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is, along with the sprinkled blood, which is more eloquent than the blood of Abel. Vertical finality, then, is the focus of our thinking, or ought to be. It's the focus of our intention, our appetition, or appetite. It's not on things on the earth, but on things above. Again, the Greek in Colossians 3.2 has ta'ano, things above. The above things, literally. It's in a prominent position in the apostolic command, which in the Greek reads ta'ano froneti, and then after that, me ta'epiteskes. Ta'ano Franetti means the above things, be thinking, be focusing, be directed, direct your disposition, your appetition, everything in your soul and mind. Ta'ano froneti, mata epitesges, not on things on the earth. Mata epitesges, not on things on the earth. Not on, that's not our focus. So this is the basic orientation or alignment of the mind in vertical finality. Vertical finality is aligned and sustained. By the expectation of the beatific vision. The beatific vision is when the pure in heart finally see God. It is when we see him as he is in his essence and in his existence, which are one. I am that I am. My essence is the same as my existence. And when we see him as he is, we shall become like him in the sense that we will know as we are known and we will be true to the essence of what God has made us to be in the image of God, in the image of God, which is Christ. So vertical finality is aligned and sustained by the expectation of the beatific vision or 
the confident expectation of seeing God in his true essence and existence, which in God are one. And then knowing as we are known. 1 John 3, 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 12, 13, 12. This is all going to be, incidentally, in print in which you'll have all the scripture references to refer to. Until the beatific vision when we all see him as he is. Having died with Christ, our life is now hid with Christ in God. And we see Jesus, the whole focus of our Hebrew study, we see Jesus from Hebrews 2.9, who tasted death for everyone, who's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We see Jesus with the enlightened eyes of our heart, Ephesians 1.18. For Paul's prayer is answered with regard to us that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. So we see Jesus with the enlightened eyes of our heart, with eyes that are continually being made to see by insights brought to us by the Spirit of Truth, who in connection with the New Covenant is also called the Spirit of Grace in Hebrews 10.29 and called the Lord the Spirit, also in connection with the New Covenant, 2 Corinthians 3, 6 to 8, 2 Corinthians 3, 17. The Lord is the Spirit, the Lord the Spirit, the Lord is the life-giving Spirit that is Jesus Christ. The more we see Jesus in this way, and this is where we're moving now, the more we see Jesus in this way, the more we become the effective 21st century apostolate. For the church itself functions as a single apostolate or embassy of ambassadors. Only effectively, though, as we see Jesus. When Paul made the bid to prove his own apostleship, he said, have I not seen our Lord Jesus? Because the original apostles were qualified by their vision of Jesus Christ. But we see Jesus, and inasmuch as we do, we become the 21st century apostolate, an effective embassy of ambassadors. The more we see Jesus in this way with the eyes of our enlightened heart, the more we become the effective and not just dormant 21st century apostolate. For the original apostles were distinguished as such as having seen our Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 9.1. In the Spirit's mission and message and ministry, he sustains our attentiveness on Jesus. He keeps our mind stayed on him, and he whose mind is stayed on him is kept in perfect peace, according to Isaiah 26.3. It is the Spirit's mission and ministry to sustain our attentiveness on Jesus. That's why we come to church. That's why we come to meet and assemble together. To be careful to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Not what man is saying, not what a preacher is saying. 
We live in a time when preachers say something non-scriptural so many times that people think it's scripture. Every time you see a preacher portrayed in the movies or every time someone wants to wax spiritual, they say something like, the Lord works in mysterious ways, which is their sum total of the knowledge of the Bible, which isn't in the Bible. Or the Lord, worse than that, the Lord helps them that helps themselves. They spew that out. I would like to just say to people that say that, where is that written? Well, it's in the Bible. No, it isn't. In fact, the opposite is true. The Lord helps the helpless. That's the whole point of the gospel. Human tradition sneaks in and steals away the power of the word. We have to be very on guard about that all the time. It's the Spirit's mission and ministry to sustain our attentiveness on Jesus and to maintain the alignment of our souls and minds and hearts in an upward directiveness where Christ is seated at God's right hand waiting for his enemies to be made a footrest for his nail-scarred feet. Now, with vertical finality in mind, consider what I call ten affirmations, ten things that we affirm, which can be enfleshed with a lot of doctrine. These, in other words, can be expanded into a phenomenally voluminous doctrine. Ten affirmations of Tetelestai phalanx, which are adapted in every case from the early chapters of 2 Corinthians, which I call affectionately two core because of my notes. One, our hope is firm, 2 Corinthians 1.7. Two, we are very bold, 2 Corinthians 3.12. Three, we do not give up, 2 Corinthians 4.1. Four, one. four we are always confident. 2 Corinthians 5, 6. 5. We walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. 6. We are completely open before God. 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Seventh, and most importantly and centrally, the love of Christ controls us. We know the love of Christ controls us when we have determined that if one died for all, then all have died. If you don't know that or you don't affirm that, you will not be an effective ambassador for Christ. You'll mix bad news in with the good news. You'll bring in traditions about hell and eternal damnation, traditions of men which God has condemned. The love of Christ controls us because we have thus determined that if one died for all, then all died. And therefore, we do not choose to live unto ourselves, that is, in a lifestyle that curves in upon ourselves and is totally occupied with ourselves and becomes confused. Confusion is not from God. God is not the author of confusion. 
The confusion of genders today is not from God. And because it is not from God, it is from the enemy, the adversary, the invisible principality called Satan. It is a satanic thing. This country has been assailed with satanic evil beyond what you could even imagine. And that's why we must stand in Christ and fulfill these affirmations. The love of Christ controls us, not judgment, not judgmentalism, not condemnation. We are harmless as doves. We're also wise as serpents in a day and age when you have to be shrewd in some regards with how we present our message. Eight, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Why? Because God in Christ has reconciled the world to himself. That's why. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Ninth affirmation, we don't receive God's grace in vain. In 2 Corinthians 6.1, the flesh profits nothing in the Christian spiritual life. The majority of Christendom, as I've seen it, and once in a while I tune in some TV evangelists until I begin to throw up a little bit and then turn, the, turn back to gun smoke. The majority appeal to the flesh and allow the, and to align the flesh to the commandments of the New Testament. And that's not Christianity at all. That's people on a moral high horse and it's absolutely sickening. And I'm not talking for myself, I'm talking for the Lord who is ready to vomit that out of his mouth. So that's Revelation chapter 3, verses 18 and following. We don't receive God's grace in vain, 2 Corinthians 6.1. We receive it unto a ministry of the Spirit, a ministry of life, a ministry that begins with our obituary, that we died and our lives are hid with Christ in God. And so we don't receive the grace of God in vain because if we justify ourselves in any way by any performance we make in the flesh, we have frustrated the grace of God. And the majority of what is called Christianity today, I must say, sadly, is a frustration of the grace of God rather than a growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ rather than a being strong in grace. In 2 Timothy 2.1. 10. We give no opportunity for stumbling to anyone. Now we've all failed in this. We've all caused stumbling. James 3.1 says that especially of pastors. You can't talk for a living without sometimes offending people in the wrong way. We already have an offense in our ministry. It's called the offense of the cross. It already cuts across all human merit and all human boasting. And so it's already an offense. And so we study not to offend unduly and say things that are offensive just so that we can pride ourselves in being tough guys. That's not what we do here. We do not speak in terms of vulgarity. We do not speak coarsely. And the scripture is very strong about that in Ephesians 5, 4 to 6. We live in a nation, and Isaiah became aware of it. I became aware of it myself. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And never more has there been a proliferation of rotten speech, and we have to be careful to avoid it. 
We don't receive God's grace in vain. And it says again in verse 10, in the 10th affirmation, we give no opportunity for stumbling to anyone so that the ministry will not be blamed. 2 Corinthians 6.3, and that goes into we make provision for what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. In 2 Corinthians 8.21. Now, why these 10 affirmations? And I could and flesh each one of these with a lot more doctrine and may down the road. Because we're face to face with the apocalypse of Jesus Christ right now, the unveiling of him, the progressive unveiling of him in the ministry of the word. And because we speak and act in the presence of God. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 2.17, we are not like the many, that is the majority of preachers who market the word of God. Send in your seed, yeah. I'd like to send in five knuckles. But again, we restrain ourselves, we see. At that point, I turned back to gun smoke, and it was all right. Everything was calm. So Paul said we are not like the many who market the word of God, but we speak instead in the presence of God in fellowship with Christ. Paul was always aware in his communication that he was in the presence of God. Imagine that. I don't imagine myself in the presence of you all first. I imagine myself in the presence of God. I imagine myself and you in God's presence with Jesus Christ at his right hand, not far away, but in the heavenly dimension here. That guards your speech quite a bit. It checks it and balances it and aligns it quite a bit. It keeps it within the sphere of the scriptures. We speak in the presence of God in Christ, in fellowship with Christ. Not like the many. not like the majority. We speak and act in the presence of God and in fellowship with Christ, the last Adam, the second man in the Holy Spirit. He's called the second man, not because he's second in importance to the first, but because as the second representative man, he brings justification to all rather than condemnation. Next, always aware that we're engaged in a theological exegesis of Hebrews, and I haven't deviated from that since 2020, we proceed to a second covenant. To the adjectives new, kainain in Hebrews 8.8, Hebrews 8.13, Hebrews 9.15, The word neos, N-E-O-S, which Brian recently did a very excellent word study on, found in Hebrews 12.24. And to the adjective better, kratonos, found in Hebrews 13 times, and defining the covenant called the new covenant in Hebrews 8.6. And to the adjective enacted on better promises, hetis, Epi, Kratoson, Epangelia, 
is the ordinal adjective deuteros, second. If the first was still in vogue, then why is there need for a second? If the first covenant was without fault, then why is there need for a second? Deuteros, a second. Now, third gear. God took away the first covenant with its system of undesirable sacrifices, which cannot expiate sin to establish the second covenant with its once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Jesus, which served to expiate sin and to eminently please God. Fourth gear. Two macarisms. What are macarisms? If you remember lenses, they are beatitudes. Here's my first macarism. Happy are the people who want to do what God wants them to do. And who are divinely empowered to do it. Why do I say that? Because that's the essence of the new covenant being fulfilled in the people of God. Happy are the people who want to do what God wants them to do and who are divinely empowered to do it. King James would sometimes say, if you you had a better macarism for that one, it would say, yea, rather, or yea. In fact, yea, rather, second macarism, happy are those in whom God does what he wants them to do which is what they, too, want to do. That's the essence of the new covenant. When our will aligns to his will, and when our doing aligns to his doing, and when his doing becomes our doing, and his willing becomes our willing, Philippians 2.13, therefore, becomes the best, singular, focused, and succinct, definition of the result of the new covenant. It is God in us, both willing and doing, of his own good pleasure. This is the reality of the new covenant. It is the reality of Jesus Christ in the new covenant community. The reality of the new covenant community is Jesus Christ in us. He who is crucified in weakness and who now lives by the power of God is a life-giving spirit. You'll see these verses in print. I don't have time. It would take an extra 15 minutes of my time to quote all, to give you the verses. So I'm going to just give this without the verses. I was all ready for a message. This came this morning early. The reality of the new covenant community, that's you, is Jesus Christ in us. He who was crucified in weakness and who now lives by the power of God is a life-giving spirit. He lives in us as a life-giving spirit. 
He who was made flesh and tented among us, who was completely obedient to the Father in the power of the Spirit in the days of his flesh, who was crucified in weakness, lives by the power of God. And it is no longer we who live. He is our life. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will appear. That is, we will appear as we really are, as we really were designed to be in the image of Christ. Our life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, our life, is manifested, we too will be manifested. This is an appearance of Christ that did not happen in A.D. 70, contrary to the so-called full preterist view. To say that it did happen then is to brag that the full manifestation of Christ's life is in you now, and sorry, not so. He who was crucified in weakness and lives by the power of God lives in you. It is no longer we who live. In my worst moments in my life, I say, I wish I could die. And the Holy Spirit always replies, you already did. And I say, okay, I died. And my life is hid with Christ in God. I was born 72 years ago, but I died 51 years ago tomorrow. I died that day. My life got to be hid with Christ in God that day from that day forward. Sometimes really hid. People around me would say, where is Christ in him? (laughs) Where is he in Christ? He's hid with Christ. I said, my life is hid with Christ in God. The more we grow in grace, the more the life that's hid with Christ, becomes manifested with Christ. And I learned very early on that the spectacular, elating presence of Christ sometimes is taken away from us, and we ask why. And the answer is always the same. I gave you a sense of my presence for a moment and then took it away because I want that presence that you felt to be experienced by others around you. I want to manifest that presence through you, which means you're not always going to be feeling it, but others may begin to recognize that presence when they're with you. And that I'm saying for all of you. That's what the New Covenant Apostolate of the 21st century is all about.
The life we live now is strange. It's a strange paradox. It's no longer I that live. I was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that, li that live. Not knowing what happened to me that day, during that happening of it, I actually remember being on the floor and remember putting myself in the cruciform position because it was the only appeal I had to God. Being aware of the Ten Commandments and aware of my intense condemnation, you want to feel hell, that was a pretty good feeling of hell. And I remember putting myself in a cruciform position on the floor before God and then God giving me the sense that you were crucified. Good position. Good position to be in, young man. 21 years of age plus three weeks. Crucified. So somebody will say, did that really change your life? No, not for a while. You hear it all the time. People say, it changed my life. What did? Why, this new vitamin, fruits and veggies in a capsule, changed my life. What do you mean changed your life? For the worst? For the better? I had a relative once who was shot with a 30-30. It changed his life, not for the better. Not at first. Later it did. Because of the grace of God. And so contrary to what Christianity would expect, that didn't change my life. It changed an inner compass in me, though, that eventually realigned my thinking, my appetition, my whole being. And that eventually changed my life. It's really not fair to say, come to Jesus, he'll change your life, your life will be changed. No, it, not necessarily, and not for a while. And then you wonder after six months why your life really didn't change that much, and you give up. He'll change the compass of your life, the direction of your life, and transform you from within, and it will eventually change from without. You'll have a different appetition. In other words, you'll desire and want, covet and even lust, objects that God wants you to covet. Give you addictions God wants you to be addicted to. Paul said that there were two men in Corinth that he said they were addicted to ministry. Imagine that. You don't have to go to a group to get out of that one. That's a good addiction. The cure for addiction is a better addiction. The cure for lusts is a better lust. The cure for covetousness is to covet something better. Appetition changed. Desires changed. When desires change, your life changes. And your appetition is upward and heavenward. Your whole focus changes. You may enjoy many of the things of this life, but you don't enjoy them 
to the point where others enjoy them because there's a higher thing always pulling at you. When people knew Jesus, they always had a sense that he was on the way somewhere. He almost seemed a little distracted because he was on the way somewhere. He appeared like he wanted to move on and go on and move on. And so eventually people stopped just saying, stop and stay with us, and instead, let me follow you. <laughs> He's on the move. A ministry worth its salt is always on the move. And that way, it seems like the whole focus of doctrine changes, but it's not changing. It's moving into greater and greater realizations of Jesus Christ. And so the life, we died, and it's no longer we that live, and yet we live. If I died, then why am I living? Because you're, you're designed to live now by the faithfulness of the Son of God, not yours, by the faith of the Son of God. The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It doesn't just mean faithfulness, it means faith. We walk by faith, the faith of the Son of God. Only by walking by faith do we perceive that there's been a radical alteration of the human situation at the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The world has been reconciled to God. Only faith recognizes that. And so faith makes you an ambassador in the New Testament, New Covenant apostolate or the people who function in an apostolic way, in an ambassadorial way, don't go out to the world and say, believe and you'll be reconciled. They go out to the world and say, you've been reconciled, believe it. And that's the beginning of a change and an alteration in the interior of the person that receives that message. Too much, it's, oh, my life has changed, and then they give a testimony. I used to do this, now I don't do that anymore. And then eventually they realize they don't have the grace to stop doing what they did before. They go back and do what they did before, and that determines them not to be a Christian anymore. So they give up, go back, hate God, hate Christianity, and all the rest of it. Because they never were introduced to Jesus Christ. Well... We live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus Christ in us is the new covenant community. Jesus Christ was in Paul the Apostle speaking and acting with power toward the new covenant community. Paul said, you want to seek a proof that Christ is speaking in me? But then he turned around and said, don't you know that Jesus Christ is in you? Yes, I was crucified with Christ, but now Christ lives in me with power. And I live with power toward you, Paul said. Because in the measure that we recognize that we're crucified with Christ is the measure that we live with power toward others, a power of good, a power of benevolence, a power of beneficence a power of grace. Our speech ministers grace to the hearers. That means that when we were together with someone and they left, they said, I was glad I was with them. Not, oh man, 
hope I don't see them for a while. Jesus Christ was in Paul the Apostle, speaking and acting with power toward the New Covenant community in Corinth. But Christ is in all the New Covenant community, which in its maturity becomes the apostolate, or the conglomerate of apostles, as it were. Now, I'm not talking about the official original apostles, of course, but I'm talking in terms of an embassy of Christ. What are ambassadors? What are they all together? An embassy. Embassy. Ambassadors. We are ambassadors of Christ, urging the world be reconciled to God, which again means you have been reconciled to God in Christ. Recognize your reconciliation. Acknowledge it. Christ is in all the new covenant community, which in its maturity is the apostolate in reality. In other words, it actually acts effectively as the apostles originally acted, but only in its maturity. And they become a new covenant kingdom of effective priests. So here we'll accelerate slightly. The new covenant community today is the new apostolate of Jesus Christ, acting effectively as such only as it bears the dying of Jesus. The true essence of apostleship is found in 2 Corinthians 4, the dying of Jesus being carried around in us. How many times do you see people exhorting Christians to give or do or serve or go on a mission field? And how few times do you hear people say, carry about the dying of Jesus in your body? which would do away with a lot of your doing and giving and going to mission fields in the power of the flesh. We carry about in our bodies the very dying of Jesus always so that the life of Jesus will be manifested in our mortal bodies. That's what I mean by apostolate. The life of Jesus, the life-giving spirit being manifested in our bodies. 2 Corinthians 4, 10, and 11, just in case you were wondering. The New Covenant community only acts effectively as it's determined, controlled by the life-giving spirit, which is the second man, the last Adam. The New Covenant community today acts effectively in the new apostolate only as the love of Christ controls that community. And the love of Christ controls that community only in as much as and to the degree that it has won, determined to know nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. Two, considered itself to have been crucified together with Jesus, buried with him, and raised with him. And three, come to the judgment that if one died for all, then all died. And four, Realize that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging them with their sins, and that the one who knew no sin was made to be sin for the world so that the world would become the righteousness of God in him. And fifth, 
It is only effectively an apostolate if there is this alignment heavenward called vertical finality. Only then does the new covenant community become initially qualified to be effective ambassadors of Christ with the word of reconciliation Holding out the word of life, says Philippians 2.16, as the salt of the earth in Matthew 5.13 and lights in the world in Matthew 5.14-16, which Jesus likened to a city of all things on a hill, the heavenly Jerusalem, Oranopolis. Philippians 2.15, also Ephesians 5.8. The New Testament apostolate goes forward doing no harm, fomenting no revolution, condemning none, but presenting the message of the great love, the universal mercy of God, justification of all through the faithful death of Jesus. This is the new apostolate atlot on the level of our time, a new covenant community who has allowed Jesus Christ to reside at home in their hearts by faith, who in their believing are experiencing an overflow of hope through the indwelling spirit of Christ, and in whose hearts the Holy Spirit is pouring out the love of God. This is the new apostolate Atlat in this time in between the two great alterations, one that alters the universe's situation, another that alters its very condition. This is the new apostolate on the level of our time. In this time in between, in this agona between the ages, by no means a sinless community, oh no, but a community under constant conversions, a community which, if obedient, allows for the maintenance of their vertical finality. Lose that and lose your distinction. Lose that and the salt loses its savor. Lose the vertical finality of an alignment of the appetition heavenward. Lose the savor. And when the salt loses its savor, it's like a nation fit only to be trampled under by the feet of a conquering army. This country's already half conquered and doesn't even know it yet. The frog is half boiled in the water, doesn't even know it, doesn't even know it. This messianic community exists for the present in the time in between the two great universal eschatological alterations. It requires continual encouragement and constant edification in love. He who is crucified in weakness, who lives by the power of God, and who in the power of an indestructible life, in Hebrews 7.16, intercedes to save us completely, has also ascended and distributed gifts to the community for the benefit of all of humanity. 
Fifth gear, among those gifts are first apostles who saw the Lord. We, the new apostolate of the 21st century, are an apostolate to the degree that we see Jesus, therefore. Hence, Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. Of those gifts are also the first Christian prophets. Now, the whole New Covenant community has the blessing and burden of being a community of prophets, forecasters of future worlds as a new creation, though some specifically prophesy or speak the oracles of God. Some speak the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11. Of those gifts that Jesus distributed among humanity are the first evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come to mind. So does Philip. Now the whole community exists as bearers of the image of God and the gospel of the glory of the Christ now. Who is that image? Though some specifically evangelize or do the work of an evangelist. And if someone calls himself generally or herself a TV evangelist, you're almost sure that's not an evangelist by a spiritual gift. Check the message. Have they talked about the reconciliation of the world by God in Christ? Then you may be on to something. You may be listening to an evangelist. Every pastor or shepherd who teaches should do the work of an evangelist, as simply a teller of the very good news. And you can't tell the good news without making it universal. Otherwise, what's good about it? Somebody loses. The only loser in my gospel is death and sin. Sin and death. And Hades, of course, just another name for Thanatos. Finally, of those gifts last listed are pastors who shepherd by teaching the word. Why poimen didaskalos? Better definition. Pastors who shepherd by teaching the word of God. In the organizational, governmental, and administrative structure of local churches, these pastors are invested with authority. Regarding the congregation, pastors do not dominate the congregation's faith. They don't tell them who to vote for. They don't regulate their life or lifestyle or judge them accordingly. They don't lord it over them in any way whatsoever. 1 Peter 5, 2-4. They are instead helpers of the joy of the congregation. And they do help their joy only in as much as they copiously communicate the word of Christ with the power of God, with precision, with an ever-increasing clarity, and with conviction in the Holy Spirit. In the table of organization of the church, there are deacons who have no authority, 
but that of service. Of course, that is also the authority of the pastor. It's an authority of service. The Son of Man didn't even come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But the pastor also exerts governmental authority to direct the deacons in their service to the congregation. Authority is usurped from the pastor only to the detriment of the church and especially to the usurpers of that authority. As is the case with all who bear real authority, the buck stops with them, to quote President Truman. They bear the brunt of the accountability to God and are watchful of the souls of an assembly and they endure discipline doubly. If God brings discipline to an assembly because of not providing what is honest in the eyes of God and men, the pastor gets it double, and it hurts. It hurts like hell. As Paul said, who is offended? Who creates an offense in the assembly? And I'm not burned by it. We're burned by every offense. Deacons do not run the ministry, nor does anyone else. They serve the congregation just as the first deacons of the church in Jerusalem in Acts, who were selected for the purpose of distributing to the needs of Hellenistic Jewish widows. Pastors should only serve, as any leader should, while they have the mental acuity and physical capacity to endure the rigors of ministry. I'm rarely, if ever, critical of leaders, but if I turn to shake hands with an invisible man, take me out of the ministry, I'm done, okay, I'm done. Some pastors, there is a time sometimes for the mantle to pass. Pastors should only serve as any leaders, coaches, senators, congresspersons, only as they have the mental acuity and physical capacity to endure the rigors of ministry and the special external and internal pressures associated with ministry. I've been in this business so long, I forgot what it's like to be without that pressure. I don't know what it's like to be without that pressure. I long to be some days, but God hasn't given me that permission and that release. Guess that means I'm still young and vigorous. Now, there is a time when the mantle has to pass to another capable man, at which time the retiring pastor, and I mean retire not in the usual sense, but backing off, may or may not choose to serve in an emeritus capacity or to give himself to prayer, to study, and to writing. Some pastors may serve with vigor as Moses did until age 120. That's scary. Or until death parts them from service. To pastors who die physically, may I say that that's a signal that your ministry on earth is done. A lot of pastors like to brag, well, I'm going to die with my boots on. I'm going to die in the pulpit. I've done it myself. But that's up to God. That's up to God. He can tell you to move along now. 
Teaching pastors should offer more than pep talks or clever sermons. A lot of pastors clamor for a title for 40 hours and then study for 15 minutes. They should be pastor theologians, especially now. They should be pastor theologians and give themselves to theological exegesis of the scriptures. They should study continually and prayerfully and arduously and never be conformed to the consensus of Christendom or align to organizations who do not let in the light of further insights. Competent and even excellent pastor theologians are needed until we all come to the unity of the faith, the transcendent knowledge of the Son of God, and conformity to the standard of human maturity that is Christ himself in Ephesians 4.13. 4.13 is not just a cubic inch engine, the Superstock Dodge Dart of the Beach Boys song. Shut it down, shut it down, buddy's going to shut you down. Eh, whatever it is, shut it off, shut it off. You're gonna, I'm going to be corrected by some old person. <laughs> shut, her, shut it down, shut it down. No, no, shut it off, shut it off, buddy's going to shut you down. Your 413 Dodge Dart Superstock is going to be charged, all right, but it's going to be defeated by my fuel-injected engine in my Corvette Stingray. No, not the Stingray. But anyways, there's a sign right there that perhaps I'm aging. <laughs> in other words, but the gift and function of teaching pastors is needed until our great archpriest appears a second time in his universal salvific unveiling. And this brings us to Hebrews, which is authored by a remarkable model pastor, teacher, whose last words involved the resurrection of the great shepherd of the sheep by the God of peace, who raised him up from the dead on account of the blood of the everlasting covenant. A voice from heaven said to me, that's enough for now. That's enough.